Hello and welcome everyone back to another episode of the Publisher Lab. I am Tyler Bishop. Alongside me as you've come to expect, Whitney Wright. Whitney, how are you doing this wonderful... Now we record on, on Mondays. We used to record yeah. on, uh, on Fridays, which I think is probably a good thing. Yeah, we can uh, catch everything from over the weekend and uh, yeah, it just kind of makes more sense. Yeah, so we, we do it in the afternoon for obvious reasons. I think a Monday morning podcast would lack the zip and the excitement that our audience has probably come to expect. Yeah, yeah that would uh, probably be the worst time to record a podcast other than a Friday. So so what is going on in the world of digital publishing as of uh, this, this wonderful, lo- lovely Monday afternoon? Well, um, we've got some Facebook stuff. Um, Don't we always have some Facebook stuff? I know. It seems like, you know what, I'd be... I feel like what we should do from now on is whenever there's Facebook news, we should just be like, you know what's going on with Facebook. You know what they're up to. Yeah, exactly. But if it's like good news, then it's like real news, right? Well, and this is good news for Facebook. Um, It is Facebook's first step towards treating our data better, um, which, yeah, we've had lots of trouble with Facebook. Um, They're always kind of... uh, coming up as bad news for privacy and such, but they um, are, they just recently announced on Tuesday that they are, um, they'd created a new tool called Off Facebook Activity, and it lets you see which apps and websites tracked you, and you can disconnect that data from that account, so Facebook can't use it for targeted advertising. Interesting. So, I mean, um, I guess if you're a publisher, you can kind of look at that in, in a bit of a positive way because mm-hmm. um, it takes a lot of the uh, third-party tracking and things like that where our users coming, you know, from, you know, potentially a, a advertiser, a brand website and coming into the Facebook environment and gives users the ability to then say, you know what, I'd, I'd prefer to not have that tracked and, and used for advertising. And, you know, that essentially might put more, it actually makes Facebook a little bit more even with publishers. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, for from a publisher perspective, that's probably a good thing. Although Facebook's motivations aren't purely altruistic. And um, it certainly is Facebook. Uh, it's sort of a tongue-in-cheek thing in that they're saying, like, hey, look, we're going to be the ones that tell you who's tracking you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty, pretty interesting on the part of Facebook. Yeah, and... Um Originally, they'd been talking about, um, specifically, Mark Zuckerberg had been promising that it's not about, he had been promising um, this kind of delete history feature, um, and that's not what this is. Um, This is just so um, you can't be aggressively targeted with ads. It's not necessarily this broad data protection, but it's um, a step in the right direction. Yeah, I think... um Again, uh, you know, coming at it from a publisher's, publisher's perspective, I think it's good to pay attention to this for a couple of reasons. One is you can look at it through rosy colored glasses and say, hey, this is great. Uh, it's taking away an advantage of targeting people on Facebook, which means, you know, publishers might ultimately benefit. But I think probably the better thing to look at with this is um, to see if this becomes a standard. I think that that's mm-hmm. Facebook's hope is that they can they can they can kind of dictate what's okay for them mm-hmm. to uh, to do to police themselves and um, yeah if it, it does seem like this satisfies uh, users or government regulators it's possible that something like this would be required of publishers so I don't know keep your ears perked up I suppose yeah um, next thing on the docket is something that you've actually wanted to talk about um, Google is testing this highlighting content on site based on the search result clicked. Um, so it's something that they've been testing for a little while. 
Um, but tell me more about it. Yeah, so essentially what this is is, um, you know, you search for something. Let's say you search uh, how to uh, install a portable air conditioner, which is something that I searched yesterday. <laughs> and um, what's, what's interesting is you may go to a page where the actual instructions to that uh, maybe in the middle of the page or something. Mm-hmm. And so Facebook ha- or Facebook, uh, Google has uh, essentially based on um, what your search query was, it will highlight uh, the text or take you to that portion of the page that seemingly answers your query. Mm-hmm. So this is good and bad. Uh, right. It's good. Well, let's start with the bad because the bad is the obvious part, I think. And the bad is that um, Google is basically taking a role now in directing an audience to how to consume your content. So rather than just helping someone locate your content, they're now saying, oh, hey, uh, person that used our search engine, um, here's the page that we think best satisfies your your query, mm-hmm. but we're not going to stop there. We're actually gonna we're gonna walk hand hand walk you down the hallway to the area that we think best satisfies what you were looking for. Um, and so it's bad from that standpoint in that publishers aren't controlling the full experience. Google is um, infringing a little bit upon mm-hmm. you know the user experience that they've designed for the users to begin with. And then uh, furthermore, you know, you could look at this uh, negatively and say, well, the chances, you know, this could cause lower time on site, higher bounce rates or yeah. something along those lines. Um, thinking about it from a positive standpoint, I think one of the things that publishers often struggle with from a quote unquote SEO standpoint is understanding exactly what, what users want to get out of their content. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, we, I've seen this recently. We talked about it a little bit uh, last podcast, but maybe to get into the details Um, if you're a publisher and you're thinking, I'm going to hide the real meat of my article that Mm -hmm. people want at the bottom, um, you might've hurt yourself if, you know, you start to drop in rankings and all your competitors are putting it at the top and that's what searchers are enjoying the most. And that's what, um, Google seeing is satisfying their search query the best, um, or vice versa or any combination of things. Google does have the ability to look at all the data and figure out what ultimately is determining a good experience from a bad one. And, um, sometimes I without the ability to compare to how uh, other results on the SERP page are doing, you might not know if it's ultimately just like the structure of your content that's causing you to lose rankings or not get the traffic because your content is better. So in some ways, Google may be helping you uh, Mm -hmm. optimize your own site uh, for them. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's really you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't uh, Google situation. Yeah, I can see that being a frustrating experience for publishers. Um, yeah, long, uh, shorter time on site, and then also um, they're less likely to click on more pages if you have embedded links um, to other pages Especially on your website. Especially at the top or something like that. Yeah, yeah, they just they miss all of that, and they miss the context that it's in. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're testing on desktop and Chrome. They've been testing it on mobile through the AMP cache, and um, I guess, yeah, we'll see how that goes, see if they keep it up or... They get a lot of backlash. Yeah, I, I think it'll be interesting. And, and ultimately, it de- I think it's going to depend on how much users uh, enjoy that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it's possible that users uh, hack it, meaning they don't like it. Um, I think we've seen that a little bit with uh, rich snippets were really, really growing for a little bit. And they were really taking over the search results. And then uh, I've seen this in some da- some pretty large data sets that I've seen. But um, people are actually clicking on lower search results, meaning like mm-hmm. results like five or six as opposed to one, two, and three, and four. 
And the reason why is, is because users would search for something and they would just scroll down to the middle of the page mm-hmm. automatically, especially on a mobile phone, mm-hmm. because they just want to get, they want to basically say like, I don't want your answers, Google, and I don't want any ads. Like, let me just get into the websites that might answer my question because I want to read about it. And so I think that's caused Google to maybe pull back a little bit on the rich snippet wagon. And uh, if users universally are like, don't tell me what to read, Google, yeah. which is very possible, I think we could see this maybe not not catch on. Yeah, I'm definitely a scroller past the... Ri- I'll check out the rich snippets, and then if it's like not really a good answer, not really what I'm looking for, then... I just scroll, yeah, about mid-page. So um, I can confirm that user behavior. Um, Another thing with Google is they are um, kind of talking about the consequences of killing the cookie um, and how it can limit online publishers' ad revenue. um, And they are going to be creating a privacy sandbox, which is a collaboration with other industry players to find alternatives to cookies um, while kind of protecting publishers from the fallout. Um, And then there's an extension for um, open source, I believe. Uh, Oh, it will also introduce an experimental browser extension for that. Um, Yeah, to show basically what what an advertiser is using to target someone. Yeah. And I think, um, so I can give a really good example of uh, this in this in play and mm-hmm. where I think this actually, in some respects, is actually really smart. Um, and then where also I think the quote-unquote death of the cookie is not, what, what users don't want is the death of a cookie, in mm-hmm. my opinion, because there's a lot of benefits of having a cookie. Um, what users don't want is basically to have um, been cookied up with a bunch of weird stuff that they're not familiar with, mm-hmm. and then that information used to target with them with ads that they're really um, not, they don't understand how or why. And so uh, a good example of this in play, you know, one of my pet peeves, and we've talked about it on the show, is the whole Facebook is listening to my microphone <laughs> debate yeah. and argument. Um, I see it all the time. So I'll give you a really good example of this in play and mm-hmm. people being ignorant to how targeting really works and mis- that misunderstanding causing like um, disinformation to spread. So mm-hmm. uh, I have my injury health blog, yeah. as you know, and uh, a lot, most of the injuries that the reason why the blog doesn't get a lot of content is because I'm very busy and I've <laughs> written all the articles so far because I've had all the injuries on there. <laughs> and uh, a lot of the injuries are from doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is something that I enjoy. And uh, so I had a really common uh, knee issue that jiu-jitsu people have, and nobody in jiu-jitsu wants to take any time off. They just want to be told, like, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. You're probably not going to hurt it any worse. I mean, that's not a doctor's opinion, but that's just, (laughs) like, what you hope. So I wrote basically an article that highlighted my experience with a knee injury, Mm -hmm. and it's written from the perspective of somebody that's basically trying to figure out do I need to like see a doctor and am I going to make it worse? Mm -hmm. And so I wrote that article and then I shared it on my injury health blog, Facebook page, and I boosted it for a small amount of money. I can't remember what it was, but a really, really small, small amount. And, um, I targeted people that followed the international Brazilian Jiu Jitsu Federation Mm -hmm. and several major Jiu Jitsu associations. So basically just people that were, that were males between Mm -hmm. like 21 and 40, uh, that we're doing jujitsu, yeah. you know, and so, um, and then I think I had some other kind of weird criteria in there. Anyways, to make a long story short, uh, three or four 
of the comments actually on the post itself. I was mm-hmm. blown away because it, it's not like I boosted it for a lot of money, so it's not mm-hmm. getting a lot of reach. Um, like four different comments were on there were like very angry comments like, Facebook, stop listening to my microphone, and I knew it, Facebook is listening. Oh, my God. Like, and then they were like, there's no other way Facebook could have known other than you know, they're listening to me. And the truth is, is like, I just made an educated guess as an advertiser that lots of people that were males between, you know, their young age were Mm -hmm. probably getting knee injuries doing jujitsu and targeting them with my knee injury, Mm -hmm. you know, content. And for them, they can't imagine that, that the jujitsu connection is what is actually causing them to be targeted because it's not a one-to-one connection, right? And I'm sure Mm -hmm. they probably hurt their knee and then mentioned it to a friend or something like that. Yeah, right. And it just, was kind of coincidental at that point. And so I think being able to understand, no, you got this advertisement because, you know, you follow the International Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Federation. Yeah. It would just kind of be like, oh, well, that's weird. Why would they Why would they still target me? They might mm-hmm. still be skeptical. Yeah. And maybe it's just because you're a bad advertiser <laughs> or just maybe you're a really good one. In my yeah. case, um, I like to think it was pretty good targeting, <laughs> you know, like kind of take point of pride. But yeah. I think... Um, Ultimately, uh, that could be a good thing. Uh, I don't know that you want Google in charge of it. Um, either way, mm-hmm. I don't think that uh, publishers are going to win in all of this. So advertisers are trying to reach an audience. Uh, publishers add so much value in terms of having audiences that they they have to find a way to buy the ad inventory. And whatever way that is, uh, you know, I think the publishers are going to be fine. Yeah, um, and Google is working on new ways to think about um, serving targeted ads while maintaining privacy. Um, One method that was mentioned um, would be to keep consumer data in large enough pools of fellow web users so that individuals, um, they have their anonymity protected. Anonymity. (laughs) And... um, But then, like, the similar characteristics would be shared with advertisers. So... um, kind of trying to best of both worlds um we'll see how far that gets. best of both worst of both yeah yeah i think that anything that kind of basically on purpose just makes advertising shittier mm-hmm. uh is probably not good yeah um because i think that that reduces the value to an advertiser and the lower the value is to an advertiser the lower that they're going to pay right mm-hmm. because especially with in the world the time of automation if uh, I'm running an ad and I spend, let's say, $100 on the ad and it produces very little in terms of cost payback, then um, what's going to happen is I'm going to have to spend more to get less. Mm-hmm. And um, that means u- ultimately, like, I'm going to, like, my cost per ad or whatever it is is going to go down. Um, if the value is really, really high, um, that means in particular I can basically spend more per ad because my cost payback is much higher. Mm-hmm. Um there's the argument that it all even out over time, but I, I do think that as a publisher, um, you should always be thinking about like how do I define the value that I provide somebody mm-hmm. and really highlight that. Yeah. Um, this last little bit is just basically more anti-tracking. Everybody's getting their uh, fingers in the pie. I've, I don't know if that's a saying, but... Um, <laughs> yeah. Have you ever been to a place where like just everybody's like, let me get my hands in that pie? And you're like, ah, man, hand pie? <laughs> No, I haven't had that happen to me. I did go to a restaurant that uh, recently that one of the best things they had on the menu was a rabbit hand pie, which is something that I would never order, but they sold it hard, uh, and I got it, and it was basically the world's best tasting fancy Hot Pocket. 
Wow, but it had rabbit in it. It it did. Uh, as far I mean, I think it was rabbit. I, uh, I'd be skeptical uh, <laughs> about that taste. I guess I've never eaten rabbit. So speaking of skeptical, um, <laughs> um, so Apple anti tracking, um, they and they're kind of the the leaders of all the anti tracking, and they're really strict about it. But um, they're just also. Um, looking for ways for, you know, no longer use a range of more um, covert tracking techniques like link decoration or fingerprinting. Um, so it's just hot in the news right now. Yeah, and I think, you know, people... Apple gets a lot of credit for this, I think, uh, yeah. externally, which I don't understand, but I think it, again, it speaks to the miseducation of, uh, I just think, general consumers about the ecosystem. Apple is doing this because it makes it... It get makes their first party data more valuable. Meaning, mm-hmm. when at so if Apple can cut off anybody that's doing any form of tracking or ways to get at you um, when you're in the Apple environment, it benefits them mm-hmm. because now you have to come to Apple to reach their audience directly. Because then they can say, "Well, listen, we cut out all those bad guys from the outside that are trying to advertise and get to you, uh, but don't worry." even though you're still going to see some ads through what Apple News, whatever mm-hmm. it is. Um, we've vetted these advertisers to ensure that they're compliant with X, Y, and Z. But it all it's the same thing that Facebook has been trying to do and Google's been trying mm-hmm. to do forever, which is um, basically keep out everybody else, get everybody inside of their environment, and increase the value of their platform. So Apple's not altruistic in this, although they are making it much harder for everybody else. And they really yeah. can dictate... A lot. They're one of few people that can kind of push Google around a little bit, and mm-hmm. why Google writes a check for what's estimated to be about four point two billion dollars every year to remain the the default browser inside a wow. Apple Safari, which that comes up all the time. Is you yeah. know, like when is Apple gonna you know maybe just say no thanks, we'll 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 make our own four point two or four point yeah, four right. billion. Um, so then this last section is something that um, we discussed earlier that I kind of had this idea. Um, if people aren't aware, there is um, a community um, within Ezoic. Um, yeah, if, you're, if, you're, if you use Ezoic, uh, which is a technology provider that um, allows, that's for digital publishers, it's an end-to-end platform. Mm-hmm. Um, Whitney and I both work at Ezoic. Yeah. Um, and yeah, if you're using Ezoic, there's this community. People can ask questions. There's different categories and threads. And I thought it'd be a good idea to um, start pulling questions from within that community, um, which is filled with digital publishers, and uh, just answer those questions uh, here. And so um, if you are in a an Ezoic user, there is a category now in the community for asking questions, and maybe we will pick yours on the podcast to discuss. Um, so I've thrown some out there. Which one would you like to answer? Or you can pick two. Um, actually, I can touch on all. I'd see three. Is there? Um, no, there's. Uh... I see three. I see the one about uh, UK traffic, one about translations, and then mm-hmm. one about site speed. Um. Well, the first one, a niche site, um, it's just about seasonal uh, revenue. Gotcha. So orders. the first one is, has anyone got a niche site and can tell me if and when they expect their EPMV to go back up after seasonal drop? Mine is still low. Um, I mean, seasonality, the best way to look at it is mm-hmm. to look at your traffic year over year mm-hmm. and your revenue year over year and to kind of see, compare and contrast that you can also look at the ad revenue index to kind of see uh, how that um, how it correlates to industry standards, ad revenue in dot, 
index. Just Google it. It's mm-hmm. the first thing that pops up. Um, so that's a really good way to look at that. Another question, uh, about 40% of my web traffic is from the UK. I'm thinking this is lowering my EPMV, which is earning per thousand visitors. Mm-hmm. So how much they earn per visitor. Does country or user affect EPMV? If yes, is there anything they can do to improve it? Um, yeah, your country and geo mm-hmm. of your audience definitely plays a role. Um, it's the value of your audience to advertisers realistically. So even if they were coming from you know the United States, but they were like, let's use just for the sake of a crude example, a homeless person, and mm-hmm. somehow we knew that the value of someone that has very little uh, capital resources to an advertiser is still low, regardless of their geo, mm-hmm. um, if they can know those things. That being said, the UK is a pretty, I mean, like as far as ad rates go, pretty good market. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely not going to be lowering your EPMV. Um, or revenue per visitor, countries do affect it. And um, there's nothing you can do to correct that unless you wanted to specifically try to tailor content towards specific geos, which I think mm-hmm. if you're starting to do that, you're really thinking about the wrong thing. I yeah. think gen- generally publishers are successful because they work backwards. They create something that they think people want and then those people find it and then you kind of just try to feed them more and more. Mm-hmm. Working backwards and saying, I'm going to try to write medical information for people in Canada or something like that mm-hmm. usually doesn't work great. Yeah. Um, so speaking of which, somebody asked, should I translate my website? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, you know. Yeah. Um, I believe this was a Spanish publisher that was wondering if he should translate his website into English and English is going to be more competitive. Yeah. Um, it depend, It really depends on the, the niche and the type of content. If translated, your content is good, needed, mm-hmm. better than other content in the English language. Um, there's a good chance, especially if the audience that you have right now has a hunger or thirst for maybe your content in a different language. Um, where I think this is probably really beneficial is if you do have an English website uh, and you translate your content into maybe a language where it's desired. Mm-hmm. Um, a good example might be if you're getting a lot of, um, uh, let's say, Portuguese um, speaking or uh, um, visitors from Portugal, mm-hmm. Brazil, something like that coming to your site. Um, uh, I mean, my jiu-jitsu website, Bishop mm-hmm. BJJ, is a really good example of this. I get a lot of people from Brazil coming to my site, mm-hmm. but it's all in English. They may read English or may mm-hmm. be interested in the content so much, but they may not have English as a first lang- language. Translating that content into Portuguese, uh, especially because the content isn't available, it's not a right. commodity, it's something that I've written or put mm-hmm. together. Um, having that in Portuguese might you know, allow me to get a lot more traffic or produce something that's you know more valuable. So... Uh, I mean, I would say look at your data. Mm-hmm. It's a good opportunity, I think. And then we've got one more. And what is it, Whitney? Um, someone was having site speed issues when they updated from HTTP to HTTPS. So inherently moving, adding an SSL to your website mm-hmm. will have absolutely no, zero, none, complete nothing impact on your website. <laughs> so moving from HTTP to HTTPS Zero impact in that mm. change in of itself. Yeah. That said, the mechanism by which you are implementing that change could have a, a uh, an impact. So a good example is how you redirect that. So if you are doing on-page redirects or canonical redirects, you're not doing it properly, meaning somebody hits that page and it starts to load, and then upon page load, it is redirecting to the canonical. 
the HTTPS version, what you want to do is have this happen at the server level, meaning as soon as someone hits that old version of your site, um, it's, it's redirecting properly. The other thing to think about is you may have hard-coded in a bunch of places across your site, maybe your menus, um, the HTTP uh, links. So what's happening is every time someone clicks on one of your links, it's, it's redirecting before it actually hits mm -hmm. that page. So all these things can cause site speed issues. So what you want to do is make sure that you have server-level redirects in place, for all of your URLs, um, it's pretty easy to do. There's a forced way of doing it in WordPress. I think there's a way to do it as well. Um, and then to make sure that you don't have hard-coded versions of all your internal links and things like that. And that's it. Yeah. Well, um, for next time, if you have access to the Yazoic community, you can ask a question in there in that category, and we will maybe answer it next week. Otherwise, you can tweet at us and ask us a question, and we can always gather those questions um, from that way as well. And I think that's it. We want to thank everyone for joining us here on another episode of the Publisher Lab.